It's episode 69 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Your nice. Weekly I was going to just go, th- just ignore it and go right through that. I mean. So you're the one who brought it up right away. You had to ruin this. I didn't even get five seconds in and you already ruined this. So anyways, I'm Steve. That's Ryan ruining things. We got JP Green here as well. So Ryan, do you have something else you want to add now that you, you ruined the beginning of the, the podcast this week? a very nice intro steve it is it is a very nice intro way to go um hey we're gonna cut the banter short because that was bad enough to begin with uh help people find this podcast by rating and reviewing milwaukee's tailgate on apple podcasts and spotify we want listener questions so follow milwaukee's tailgate on twitter at mke tailgate email questions to milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our facebook page you can also follow the three of us on twitter and you'll find that in our milwaukee's tailgate twitter bio and finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash tailgate. Our ball and glove level patrons will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. And when have we got that one coming out? We'll do it this week. At JP, yes? This week? I believe so. Okay. Sounds like you got this thing nailed down. Yeah, we had, we had very firmly planned. <laughs> uh, Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing from Dragon Flute to Block Party. To Fantasy Factory IPA, K4 specializes in English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Coming out on December 21st is Threat Level Midnight, which is a s'mores stout. They're bringing this one back. Mm, s'mores. You got chocolate. Yeah. You're not Chocolate's a, bad, Steve. But it has marshmallows. Maybe it has enough marshmallows, marshmallows to cover up the, the chocolate taste. The chocolate's bad. Well, you don't care for stouts unless they're, what, the bourbon? No, I'm, I'm, fine, with, I'm fine with stouts as long as they are not overly chocolatey. What about, Basically, what about the coffee flavor? I'm it? fine with that. Even though coffee I don't nerds? drink coffee, you coffee nerds, I, I, I'm fine with the coffee flavor. It's fine. I think, JP, that's the one. You should, you should try a good like coffee stout. I'm having coffee right now. There you go. Friend. Friend of the podcast, David Weir's got me some La Colombe on the way from Chicago. So, did you Irish that up for the podcast this week? I did not. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh, I didn't know. What? Notre Dame? Yeah, you can do the, it there. Let's swear your honey bear. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, check out the uh, Threat Level Midnight coming out on the 21st at Carbon Four Brewing. It's a s'more stout. Uh, what else is in it? Chocolate rye and wheat, caramel rye, wheat, toasted buckwheat. Toasted buckwheat, blackstrap molasses, baker's honey. It's got a lot of stuff in it. That's yeah. That I'm intrigued by that now. There you go. Uh, if you drink that, you don't need to eat for a week. No, it's like it's a meal in a glass. Exactly. So hey, and don't forget, you can also get twenty percent off of merch at Carbon Four's web store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. Visit their brewery on Kinsman Boulevard or find their beer at your local retailer. As always, check out carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4 Beer Brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information, visit Sound Devices dot com so i don't know was there a lot of news for the brewers this week or do we think the goldschmidt stuff kind of uh took the wind out of anybody's sales yeah i mean the goldschmidt thing was the biggest news relevant to the brewers this week i think i think so okay so so the cardinals acquired paul goldschmidt for a handful of 
yeah. prospects? Well, not really prospects. They're guys who've been in the majors, but they're still young with a, quite a bit of cost control. Luke Weaver is a guy who w- was a highly thought of prospect and has not turned into the greatest major league pitcher, um, but is still young and there's still potential development there. And Carson Kelly was supposed to be the heir apparent to Yadier. And he just never really seized even like the backup job. He would kind of up and down quite a bit and never really firmly took that, you know, in control. Probably more of a defender than a, an offensive player. But I think there's enough offensive profile there where he could be one of those guys who in his prime as a catcher could actually be a pretty decent hitter. Not necessarily like a guy you'd hit three, four, five in your lineup, but you know, a guy that you wouldn't feel bad about hitting sixth, mm-hmm. like that sort of thing. Yeah, JP, you thought it was a pretty fair trade both ways, correct? That Arizona got talent. They got some legit talent. And obviously, Goldschmidt is one of the top hitters in baseball. And the Cardinals have him for a year. And I guess the ability to negotiate a, an extension beyond this. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people didn't necessarily like what Arizona was getting back because they didn't have you know, the star power. They didn't have the wild prospect going back for one of the guys who's, you know, one of the biggest elite hitters in in the NL. Somebody that we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, you know, how good he would have been in Milwaukee or different things like that. And I understand that in terms of trying to figure out, you know, like where is, where's the impact piece. But Goldschmidt's a, a first baseman. He is... Uh, only got one one year in return. So if you are going to get an impact piece, you're likely only going to get one. Um, and so what Arizona is trying to do is they're trying to do exactly what Milwaukee was doing a couple of years ago, in which they understand that their farm system is barren. They understand that a lot of their biggest pieces and their chance to compete is at best would have been this would have been their absolute last year before a lot of guys were starting to depart and they were going to have a lot of bad money on the on the books and they would have been struggling. And so what they've decided to do is move somebody like Goldschmidt, try to get a couple of guys who can be useful big leaguers the next time that they they plan to compete. And yeah, Luke Weaver took a step back last year. DRA doesn't really like what he did last year, but the year prior in 20 uh what a 2017 he was a legit mid three era guy who came up uh he's still somebody that you can see as a number three or number four some people who really like him will say he's a number three and carson kelly's still you know he's a top 100 prospect a guy who's been overshadowed in st louis just because they've had another uh they've had another catching prospect really break out who's in triple a right now who i think they're kind of looking as the next heir apparent, right? Like Carson Kelly was the guy, but then uh, I believe it's K- Knizner. I don't I don't know how to say his name. It's like K-N-I-N-Z-E-R. Uh, and he's another top 100 prospect who's coming on in. And they looked and they were able to trade from depth, exactly what the Brewers were doing when they were looking for Christian Yelich. And they took a couple of guys who maybe had some slight down arrows next to their name, still have some risk, but Arizona's looking at the cost of control. They're looking at the fact that there's still upside for both of those guys. They got a comp, a B pick. And when their system is so bad, they're looking at uh, the kind of the mid season draft as a way that they can just acquire a ton of talent. They're going to have so many picks coming in and their bonus pool is going to allow them to have a lot of flexibility. 
And then they got, and I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but the third uh, prospect piece coming back was one of MLB pipelines kind of breakout guys in, in the AFL. So there's, it's, it's much more quality depth than it is star power. And I understand, you know, Goldschmidt, you want to see the star power coming back, but if you're Arizona, you're, you're doing exactly what the Brewers showed you to do. You need depth. You need quality depth, and if you can do that, you give yourself the flexibility and the depth to be able to return to contention as quickly as possible. So I actually like the deal for both sides. I think Goldschmidt makes the Cardinals a ton better. Well, Arizona's going to have other chances, too, to improve their overall farm system this winter. They're probably going to trade Zach Greinke. That would make a lot of sense at this point. Now, how much... I was going to say, do you see that as an opportunity to improve the farm system well it depends how much money they're willing to take on and how much like who they're dealing with in terms of you know trying to clear that out and whether or not they're going to try to buy prospects basically with money by offering to take more of that money well how many years does Granky have left on his contract three years at about 35 per it's like 104 million he's still owed so he is i mean that contract is a big big pill for anybody to swallow you would think that arizona is going to have to take on some of that money or they could take back bad contracts the other direction, you know what I mean, to make that work out, which, you know, something Seattle's kind of done quite a bit well, of in their sell-off is they've been willing to take back bad contracts. But, I mean, if they don't get anything back and if they can, you know, still pay because Greinke's the only big contract left on the roster, is it really necessary to even get rid of them? I mean, like, they don't have that much of a need to do it beyond just, you know, trying to save money. I mean... If they're doing what they're, I think they're doing, then it makes sense to trade everybody and try to clear out basically everybody that you can turn into some kind of asset. But if you're just trading Granky and you don't really get any talent in return, right? But I'm not sure if it's if you're going to be paying that money regardless, right? Okay, so we're assuming you're paying that money. Would you rather have Granky or would you rather have a young guy who could potentially be really valuable in three, four, five years when you're good again? I would always take Zach Granky on my team. Well, there's that. I mean, but the point is, is like if you're trying to rebuild and trying to reset for the future, you would, you know, even if if you're going to be paying that money one way or another, you might as well try to turn it into prospects as opposed to, you know, 35. And and my point, my my point was just I don't think Granky's going to return any prospects, really, if you're just trying to dump the money. Right. And so, so that's the question is, are they trying to dump the money or will they be looking to pick up a substantial portion of it? Chances at back bad prospects. Chances at Grinky. Chances at Grinky becomes a brewer. Extremely low because thirty-five million dollars a year is just not something we've the the most AAV we've ever seen on a Brewers player is Brian Braun at twenty. We've never that would be going almost double what we have seen in terms of AAV. mm -hmm. I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the Arizona side of paying money to acquire a better prospect if you're if you are a team are you paying a top prospect to get them to to spend money so you can get cranky i mean is that really like yeah i understand the arizona side of it i don't understand who's going to say yeah i'm going to trade an elite prospect so i don't have to pay but i still get zach cranky yeah it won't be an elite prospect you're right about that it if if they took on a bunch of money i could see them getting a collection of players like they just got for for Goldschmidt you know what I mean but you'd have to take on a bunch of money to make that work no I mean you're you're essentially like Luke Weaver is very much like uh, a Brandon Woodruff type player 
and Carson Kelly's a top hundred prospect. You're not getting that. So we, that Weaver, Weaver, Weaver hits dingers. Oh, absolutely. That's why <laughs> in in playoff situations, exactly. But I think, I think everybody's looking for that kind of player. <laughs> I think if Arizona's trying to actually trade Granky and you want pieces back, you're going to have to do what the Mariners did with Cano. I think if if they were able to put put him together with with a reliever that that's good, uh, they might have an opportunity to be able to go. If they want to put Archie Bradley in there, you might have an opportunity to get a good prospect or two. Of course, there's the age-old argument to say that why don't you just try to do the salary dump and trade uh, Archie Bradley elsewhere, but Archie Bradley is there to entice somebody to take on the money and still try to give you a piece or two uh, on on the backside. The problem with that is Archie Bradley was actually pretty bad in the second half. So you're going to have to have a some limited idea of what you're going to do there. I think David Peralta is still somebody, I believe he's not out of contract and he's still with Arizona. He could actually be a really nice target for somebody that's looking kind of mid-level prospect wise and getting somebody who uh, can really impact your your ability to, to win baseball games in 2019. Is there a conundrum here where for the Diamondbacks, I know this isn't a Diamondbacks podcast, but uh, is, is. There, is there a conundrum here with Granke where it may make sense in a sense to think that the most return you could get would be if he's pitching well in a pennant race, you trade him during a pennant race. You know what I mean? Like if he's pitching well and some team really needs a frontline starter, you could trade him at that time. That would probably be the best prospect return. But the problem with doing that is moving money in season is harder because budgets are much more set. They're more firmly, you know, in the off season, teams can move money around and do things in the season. It becomes much more set. And so you'd be talking about having to take on whatever massive amount of money that is and just deal with it and just accept that that's what you're paying. So like from that perspective, his contract might be, you know, which, you know, this is obvious, but it's an impediment to being able to do anything with him just because it makes everything very awkward. Like, how do you fit the money in as well as trying to get prospects back for the player that he is? It's probably not. Well, yeah, I think they just need to adjust expectations of, you know, what an actual return is for a player like that with that contract. So, but I guess more importantly, what does Goldschmidt to the Cardinals do to the NL Central? What kind of impact does that make on the Cardinals roster? And does that tighten what we look at? as a, a race between the Brewers and Cubs in 2019 and adds a third team in there. I mean, it unquestionably makes them better, right? Like that's, they're a considerably better team now because of it. He gives them a, an anchor bat right in the middle of that lineup to be, you know, very, very valuable that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough situation that way. Fortunately, it's just one year though. I was listening. Well, they can to, move Carpenter off of first base as well and get more value out of him. So even before this happened, yes, they could. But even before this happened, I caught uh, Derek Gould, who's the St. Louis Post Dispatch beat writer, though I think he's a columnist now. He was talking to Buster Only on the ESPN podcast about the Cardinals' model, and he mentioned that really the team has seen a need to go back to their previous model, which is you trade for guys close to expiring contracts convince them that St. Louis is the baseball heaven that they want to spend their time in and then sign them to undervalued free agent contracts. And that's essentially their model. 
and that's what they were. And so it was funny to see this Goldschmidt thing happen then the next week where it was like, well, okay, apparently this is, you know, them trying to work that model again, because a hundred percent, that's what they're going to try to do here is to convince Goldschmidt to sign a below market extension to stay in St. Louis and become, you know, a true Cardinal and all that. So we get that to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, JP Cardinals won 88 games last season. Does Goldschmidt give them enough wins to keep up with the top of the division? Well, I think it gives them arguably, arguably, I know that Brewers fans will will look at uh, Christian Yelich, obviously, but arguably the best hitter in the NL. Um, Goldschmidt is... Goldschmidt's got a longer track record of doing it. Oh, certainly. Well, and Chris Bryant can also be in that conversation as well when his shoulder's better. Sure. I, I would rather have Paul Goldschmidt than Chris Bryant any day of the week. Um, I I know you're going to make comments about contract and position, but in terms of being a pure hitter, I'd r- much rather have Paul Goldschmidt. And uh, okay, there's a piece of this in which you look at the Cardinals were able to basically trade from depth that they weren't going to be relying on for 2019 and get themselves one of the best hitters in in the NL. And there, I don't think there's any conversation to be had to suggest that they didn't massively improve themselves. Um, I know I saw on Twitter a bunch of uh, a bunch of Cubs fans were like, well, what about Anthony Rizzo? Isn't he the best uh, first baseman in in the NL? And he's not. So that sorry, that person is now in St. Louis. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think, you know, going into 2018, the Cardinals were looked at as just a bit ahead of the Brewers. As far yeah. as talent-wise on the team, I would imagine going into 2019, they're still going to be viewed as close or maybe a coin flip with this move. I think it'll depend on what the Brewers are able to do, obviously. right? I mean, if the Brewers are able to go and get somebody to massively upgrade the, the starting rotation, and then they're able to keep guys like Hayter and maybe even Corbin Burns in the, in the bullpen and Knable full season, and they're able, able to address these sorts of things... Um, I still think that there's a conversation to be had in terms of the Brewers still being one of the one of the favorites in the NL Central. But um, as of right now, not knowing what the Brewers are going to be doing, especially this week with the the winter meetings, um, I would think that the Cardinals, especially once projections come out, are going to be ahead of ahead of Milwaukee. And do you know is Reyes going to be? back for the beginning of the year or is he out a little bit longer not the beginning no i think they're hoping to have him as like a trade deadline sort of acquisition because he he had his surgery early last year but it wasn't like before camp or anything i think it I was right at the beginning of the season right well he had he pitched in milwaukee and he ended up i thought he had a shoulder it wasn't it a shoulder issue or did he have tommy john surgery i thought he had tj yeah, well, he might have. Um, so if if he had TJ surgery, then yeah, they won't be they won't be looking at him coming in. But I think the Cardinals most li- I would be shocked if the Cardinals are done. Oh yeah, well, I'd be shocked if anybody was done at this point. Everybody's well, going to be made well, I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are a like, couple guys available. I think still on the market. I mean, <laughs> I mean, adding to in, be done. I mean, I mean, adding impact guys, not like adding around the edges and like going to get your left-handed reliever. Sure. Um, so yeah, JP, you mentioned that we had the winter meetings coming up and the Brewers have had a few rumors swirling around them already. And they mostly seem to be starting pitchers, which I always wonder about that. If it's, 
Is that what gets reported because everybody is so obsessed with the Brewers starting rotation is so bad, they must need to add a top line, front of the line starting pitcher. And that seems to have been like the riding narrative with this club for, well, I in a larger sense, like my entire lifetime. But, you know. Yeah, it is forever. It is forever, basically. Even their their best teams have still always been fine. But at you but know, in a most basic sense, set. like they're their pitching has never been as deep and good as it has been in my time closely following the club, which goes back to, you know, about the turn of the century. I mean, I was a fan when I was a kid, but I wasn't closely following like, and I've never seen any sort of pitching depth like this in what they currently have. Yeah. My adult fandom of the team, nothing even close to this, the, just the pure depth of like good arms and yeah, not a we don't have an established big time starting pitcher who's like a frontline guy. But what they have is literally everything else. Sure. And I think in piles, just piles yeah, of everything else. The Brewers did a lot last year by managing a pitching staff that didn't have basically a horse on the front end and getting the most out of what they had. And I think there's still this need to say, well, imagine if they can get that ace that can actually go out there and give them seven innings, you know, a start. Well, and that's the yeah, but is that actually what they need? Well, is that okay. what the team is obsessed with Here's, in doing? Or are, well, they, no, it's or are they worried about adding more depth? It's an easy narrative to go with. And I think everybody would be excited. You would be excited as well if they added a frontline starter. But okay, so the rumors right now, they've been connected to Madison Bumgarner again, which I think they've been connected to Bumgarner a bunch of times. Anytime that Bumgarner looks like he might get moved from San Francisco. I know Breen had thoughts on this. Do we, do we want to take them one at a time? Sure. I don't know what my specific thoughts were on this, but on Bumgarner. Well, so I think in to go back to your previous question about why the Brewers are consistently connected to starting pitching, it's because they literally check in everywhere. Right. Like they they do their due diligence on everyone. They talk about tons of people via trade. They talk about tons of people on the free agent market. And so when you've got guys like John Paul Morossi going out and trying to talk to agents and teams as far as like who's checked in on certain players, the Brewers will always be there. And when the Brewers are mentioned with anyone that is a pitcher, they will always be put on there because, as you said, the national media are like they need to help in their their starting rotation and so they will always be one of the teams in which people who are speculating and paid to speculate will say that this makes sense does david stearns have more texts to other gms and other people in the game than anybody else because it it does seem like they are literally connected to everybody about anything at all times you see a list if there's three or four teams listed for a player almost inevitably the brewers are one of the three or four teams it just consistently happens when you're checking MLB trade rumors and all that, it's just every time. Do you really think that they just all text or do they have like some other messenger app that they use? Do you think they have like a giant Slack? I don't know. Do, what Do they? Do you remember when... Do they uh, like hashtag Bumgarner and then everybody in there just like... <laughs> they all do it publicly so that everybody else can yeah, see what everybody else is talking about. Do you remember when the entire... Hey, just about- saw this on Twitter. <laughs> When everything about the Astros came out and kind of like making fun of them for their uh, dealings, or maybe it was Boston. Somebody got in. I it might have been Boston with Theo Epstein, or but or it was or it was uh, with the Astros. I can't remember which. But basically, somebody hacked into the system and and like and published all of like the text messages for for trades. And so, absolutely, they text message each other all of it. And and the whole point was that like a lot of the text messages were just like absolutely ridiculous. But it's yeah, they absolutely text each other. 
Oh yeah, they were showing that who is making really ridiculous proposals. It was it was centered on Houston making really ridiculous. I think it was Houston. They were the, oh no, that was part of the the hacking scandal from St. Louis. Yeah, that was, and that whole point of it was they're that annoying team in your fantasy league that sends insulting trades to everybody, and everybody else is like, "Why do we?" Still well, but hold on, this person in our league. We also see like some trade go through, and we're like, "How did that ever happen?" Like, it does that, happen. Yes. That's an absurd trade. Why would anybody ever consider that? And now it's accepted and going through. Well, apparently that's how it works as you do. You get those GMs that must spam everybody with terrible <laughs> trades. And then eventually, like some idiot just goes, sure, whatever. <laughs> I just want you to shut up. Yeah, <laughs> Leave me get away from me. So, okay. So we got Bumgarner. Uh, chances Bumgarner happens? I actually don't think it's a ter- I don't think it's uh very unlikely. I I think it's very I think it's going to be difficult for the Giants to trade Baumgartner because the the fan base is not going to want to accept what Baumgartner is probably worth on on the open market right now, which he is not he he's not going to be priced out as an ace. Uh he doesn't have a lot of control years left. It would be really difficult for a team to go out and say that they want to take a really big gamble by trading a, a really big prospect out there. Maybe they wait for it. Maybe they get a team that's willing to to, to gamble on Bumgarner and and kind of be this big guy in a huge, uh, in a huge postseason push. And maybe he just like kind of lost interest last year. I don't necessarily know. I know he dealt with some injuries as well, but. I can't imagine a situation which the Brewers would be the one that would be willing to take the chance. I think that they would like Baumgartner, but only if it's a price that they think makes sense. Well, and what do the Brewers have right now that they'd be willing to part with any of these names we go with? Because we also have Trevor Bowers on the list, Sonny Gray. I mean, they're not going to command top prospects or guys who have started to break in with your burns and heroes and guys like that. I mean, I but, but the trade. Brewers don't have the depth in their system that they had this past season that they traded away to acquire some guys. Yeah, I wouldn't trade Corbin Burns for Bumgarner. No, obviously. I think, well, you say obviously, but I think that for, you know, the Giants fans that we were talking to on Twitter, JP and I, it was like, well, they would want Burns and Hira. Like, they, and it's like, well, but that's part of the problem JP's getting at here is. Yeah, we don't, like, retroactively get the World Series he's won already. Right, that's the thing is, to Giants fans, he is you know the Haas he's that guy that they you know and he's he's just not that guy anymore like ever since the injuries started you know and he he decided to take a dive off an ATV when he's a guy who also like let's be honest the dude was pitching well over 200 innings a year in some years especially depending on the postseason but he was over 200 every year from 21 to 26 and that's not including those postseason runs so like he had some years in there where he was like with postseason was like up at like 250 and he was doing this in his early 20s at a time when it generally means bad things for pitchers you know taking on that kind of a workload usually that ends up shortening careers significantly you know carlos zambrano think that yeah um so what about trevor bauer uh that's one that's popped up um i i mean well i know personally you don't like bauer ryan so trevor bauer is somebody that I think makes a lot of sense for the Brewers just because I know that they've been interested in him in the past. Uh, they wanted him before his big breakout season this year that now is going to ca- make his price tag uh, jump extravagantly. And so 
Bauer is is the guy that I think makes a lot of sense if they can figure out a way to make it happen. But if they do make that happen, it is going to be a pretty penny that ends up going. I think it's going to probably be the Woodruff Burns type of guy that that's the the leader. I think would that be for, Woodruff and Burns? Uh, or are you I, saying one of those two would be a headliner for it? I would imagine one of those two. I I think that it is a step down from Burns to Woodruff. So I, I, I would think that Burns would probably be the headliner if any Bauer deal were going to go through. I, I know... You don't think it would have to be Hira? I think it would have to be Hira. No, I don't. Um, to make that... For, for them to actually pull the trigger on it with the Brewers, I think they'd have to have Hira. I don't uh, think they're going to the trade Indian, Bauer without him. The Indians desperately want to be rid of one of Kluber or Bauer. So they're they're in a situation in which they're going to there's no way that after last year and and the Garrett Cole trade, I think that the Brewers would have to trade Kesson here hmm. for, for that kind of pitcher. Um, I mean, but he had Cole was pre breakout. You were getting a guy before he had that breakout. He had been largely just kind of a, a yeah, disappointing ish. But, but anyone making that trade was not thinking he was that guy. I was telling you beforehand that that was in that was not reasonable to call him a mid rotation starter. Garrett Cole. Yeah, we talked about it on the podcast even, and I was yes. saying that no. it was an absolutely ridiculous thing to say that he was a mid rotation starter. He was a potential ace that you were acquiring. Yeah, I mean, and they yes, but it, he was an unproven. He was he was very analogous to say Trevor Bauer before this season. No, he wasn't. Garrett Cole had shown the fact that he could be an ace over the course of a season throwing 200 plus innings trevor bauer never even dreamt of that right right, right. but now bauer has shown it so right but you're saying that he, that cole you're saying that cole was analogous to bauer before this past season and that's not right oh yeah because cole had been better earlier you're right about that okay so i think that trevor bauer is the guy that the brewers like because he pitches high in the zone he gets a lot of whiffs he's the guy who gets a lot of strikeouts and is able to not get that many walks if he's able to limit the amount of homers he's somebody that's a i mean he's the guy he was last year um two point what was it 2.21 era something like that and yeah 2.21 era and his fip was 244 but Again, I don't necessarily know if that is something that's going to allow them to come together. It, now, if it's like, I would imagine that the Brewers would want to try to trade somebody like a Domingo Santana for pitching. It, I think it's a lot of the same conversation we were having last year. I don't see a situation in which Keon Broxton and, and Domingo Santana are on the roster come spring. Yeah, but we thought that last year too. But I, I agree. I think you're well, right. Now, but, but now they don't have options. Right. So now they, they literally don't have that flexibility. They literally don't have options. They literally do not have options. Yeah. So, okay. Sonny Gray is the third guy. <laughs> He's not the best host in the business for nothing, guys. Um, okay. Sonny Gray was the, he seems to be the final bigger name that they've been connected to. You found that amusing, Ryan? So I got I've, a spit take out of that. Well, I've seen people list him and they're like, should we get Syndergaard to Grom? What was the one? It was Syndergaard to Grom. Um, Somebody else, and then Sonny Gray, and it was like, well, Sonny Gray is not in the previous group because he isn't, you know, he has not been the pitcher that he was when he was in Oakland basically since the moment he left Oakland. And some of that is going to the AL East and going to Yankee Stadium. Like, that's going to do it to a lot of people. A right-handed pitcher who has some fly ball tendencies in that stadium, that's a really bad fit because left-handers are just going to crush dingers on you all day long. But... It's still with Gray. 
Well, I, okay, I've never on. been a believer in Sonny Gray. I didn't think the Brewers should have traded for him. This goes back to like our first episode of this podcast. I didn't think the Brewers should have traded for him at the deadline uh, you know, in 2017. I do not think he's a long-term frontline starter. I think right now, if you brought him in, you can make a case. If you trade for Sonny Gray right now, he is like your sixth or seventh best starting pitching option. You can put that many people ahead of him based on how bad he has been since leaving Oakland. J- JP, do you think his talent still suggests that he's his talent now suggests that he's that poor of a pitcher in comparison to what the Brewers already have? I think a lot of his issues stem from his limitations that we've talked about for a long time. And so I think he is a guy that can go through stretches uh, in which he's borderline unplayable in the starting rotation. I do think that he'll still have some stretches that he's actually quite good. Uh, but I think anybody that's looking at Sonny Gray is either going to be a team not in contention that wants to try to rebuild his value. I think if you're a team in contention, you're trying to make him in, uh, into a reliever. Oh, yeah. And I just, what's the point? <laughs> we have lots. I, I feel well, like okay, you're going so to would, have to give up more. I was going to say, what's the price tag for someone like Gray? I mean, they can't trade scope now since he signed with the Twins. Because wasn't that going to be the deal? We take two guys that are disappointing at the trade deadline and swap them? And swap them, yeah. (laughs) I mean, and that's, I don't know. There's lots of guys you can do that with who are not going to command the salary that Sonny Gray will command. One, I mean, because, okay, fine. You want to you wanna rehab him and potentially turn him into a, uh, into a reliever and maybe a, a pretty decent reliever? Okay, fine. But you can find a bunch of guys who aren't going to take what he's got to be in line to make like eight or nine million this year in arbitration. Right? I mean, he's, uh, I should have this. I don't have it in front of me. So uh, professionalism. Well, but there's, I think if you're looking at somebody like Sonny Gray, you're trying to dream on the fact that he's got uh, a big fastball curveball combination is going to give up some walks and homers. And and you're trying to say, let's cut him loose for an inning or two at a time and seeing if we can take advantage of the new bullpen roles to try to create a, a relief ace sort of situation. But again, I don't think that anybody, well, I'll just say the Brewers. I don't think the Brewers should be paying whatever it's going to, to cost to take a gamble like that i know that people like sunny gray because he's somebody that's shown it in the past and they like the idea of being able to buy low on somebody and and get and reap the rewards right i mean it's that's what that's what we all do is we take a look at the the free agent thing and we say okay which one of these guys is not going to cost all that much but could reap a lot of uh, benefits right and we all just kind of make that mental connection in our head we do that on the trade uh we do that on the trade market. We try to see who you, who you could get, and not have to pay full market price for, and then look really smart in about three months. Um, I don't think Sonny Gray is the, is worth that gamble. Um, and I think if he were worth that gamble, he wouldn't be on the on the trade block uh, as much as as much as he is. And I don't think that you would see a lot of people trying to say that they just basically need to dump his salary. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at he made six point five million in his second year of arbitration last year. In 2017 or in 2018. So 2019, he's heading into his final year of arbitration. Then he's a free agent. So you're getting one year of him, first of all. And I have to think at 6.5, he's going to get some sort of a raise on that price, 7 million or something. So like, let's say seven to eight. Yeah. You're talking about a guy who's going to cost seven to eight million dollars. I mean, that you're hoping to rehab. And like, he had to have been somebody that the Yankees at least discussed considerably the idea of non-tendering. Like at that salary, and you know, so really, you're dreaming on 
a comeback for him, which very well might happen. And maybe it does happen, especially in the bullpen, like JP is talking about. But man, like, what do you want to give up for that? Yeah. Like nothing. Okay. So moving on uh, a little bit more winter meetings, uh, Gary Wheeler on Twitter asks, what would be your prediction for an out of left field move this week for the crew? Do you have something crazy you want to see? Anything you've been cooking up, Ryan? Yeah, you know what? Okay, if this isn't that spirit of out of left field, Brandon Nimmo. The Mets seem to just like want to trade him. He's connected to a bunch of things. The Brewers absolutely do not have a place to play him. Like They would have to do some serious roster juggling to find an everyday spot for him in their outfield because you know they already have very good outfielders. But Brandon Nimmo is an on-base machine who has some pretty decent skills otherwise as well that you could you could work around and would be an absolute insanely great piece to have at the top of the lineup like he would he would slot in and you would you know hit him lead off or whatever and he really really gets on base so if you want something out of left field that absolutely will not happen but would be fun nimmo jp do you have somebody you want to see him go out and get well, I was trying to think about who would make a lot of sense. I still think if you could try to cook up a trade with Cincinnati to get Rysel Iglesias, I think he'd be a really, really good piece to have at the back end of the bullpen. But Cincinnati uh, is planning on contending, JP. No, they're not. And, <laughs> uh, they make a lot of noise about that, though. Well, it turns out that most of the stuff that people say in public is not actually true. Um <laughs> And so I think that he's somebody that makes a lot of sense. I'm a little bit surprised they didn't trade him last uh, last summer, but they could look at a few pieces like that. But if you're looking at somebody in the starting rotation, I mean, so many starters. Everything is just basically packing into competitive teams. I mean, I don't necessarily think about. I, I don't know where the trade options are going to be for a starting for a starting pitcher on on teams that are going to be really itching to trade, right? Which is why Bauer makes some sense because, like Cleveland, for monetary reasons, for good or for 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 bad, um, they want to they are going to try to shed money and they're going to be trying to trade Kluber or uh, or Bauer, and and both of them obviously are very good pitchers, and so if the Brewers could make one of those work. I think they'd be foolish to not give it a go. Um, but of course it all comes down to price. It comes down to these things. And those two are going to cost a uh, Those two are absolutely going to cost a price. That'll make Ryan really unhappy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, we got a, qu- a question from at Bonner time on Twitter. Uh, and he asks, what would you think of Ian Kinsler as a stopgap second baseman? Still a good defender and brings decent pop and a strong contact ability. The only downside I can see is his lack of positional versatility. Do the Brewers need to go out and get a stopgap at second base? I mean, if if you are looking for a stopgap, if that's what they want, if they're not going to just like turn to Hero three weeks into the season, so like if you're going to do that, if your plan is we're going to turn to Hero three weeks into the season, then it doesn't matter. You just go with Perez or you just, you know, whatever, assortment of whatever you pick up, Mauricio Dubon if he makes it, whatever. If you're going to do a stopgap, Kinsler makes a lot of sense. Though, as he says, once you do bring up Hira, now that lack of possessional flexibility really hamstrings you. Like, what do you do? Because there's no such thing. There's an old Kevin Goldstein, Jason Parks thing. There's no such thing as a backup second baseman. So 
you know, you have to be able to be more flexible. You have to be able to play other positions if you're going to be that. So I don't know how much that necessarily makes sense and if the price tag would make sense. He's certainly not going to command more than a one-year deal. So whatever you're doing is on a, you know, a stopgap one-year type contract. But, I mean, I could see it. It depends how much they – if they think that Hira is more of a second-half type call-up, it makes a lot more sense than if they think Hira could potentially be up in you know late April, May. JP, when do you think Hira is going to be up? Because I think that's probably going to determine a lot of this. I think he'll be up pretty early. I, I, I think he's going to be up beginning of May. Um, so the opening day lineup will be Hernan Perez playing starting at second base. I mean, I I actually think they're, they'll probably go and get somebody, again, like the kind of the Josh Harrison type mold guy who can play multiple positions, Estrubal Cabrera, somebody that we talked about that could make some sense. I, I do think that they're going to go and get somebody for second base, but it's going to be somebody that they can uh, use as a bench bat um, going forward and be somebody who's useful because, again, we've talked about injuries and depth and the importance of that. You need to have everybody in your roster be able to play multiple positions and not have to worry about those sorts of things. Um, but I was looking a little bit more into kind of a left field thing. And maybe this isn't left field because it's, it'd be a free agent uh, pick. But I mean, we talked and maybe we even talked about it. A- Annabelle Sanchez, I think, is somebody that nobody is really talking about, but is kind of the guy, the Wade Miley sort of uh, kind of comeback story that is going to command a little bit more of a price. And Annabelle Sanchez is actually a guy who statistically holds up a little bit better than Wade Miley. Um, but it'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out of kind of the winter meetings in terms of what people are looking at and how people want to go in and see. I mean, Annabelle Sanchez, the guy, he had 275 DRA this past year. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's uh, over what, 140 innings or so, something, 136 innings. Um, so he, he's a guy with a, a pretty good track record and somebody that can kind of bounce between the the rotation and, and, uh, and, and the bullpen for somebody that the Brewers would like for that. And Sanchez still has more pure stuff at this point in his career than what you're looking at with somebody like Miley, who really was getting by based on the fact that he discovered this cutter and was able to work that in and, you know, do that. Whereas at this point, you know, Sanchez is still running up there and throwing 91 miles an hour. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole thing with Sanchez, though, is he discovered a cutter. Right. Like it was all of a sudden he started throwing his cutter almost 25 percent of the time last year where he had never really thrown it for more than, you know, a handful of times over the course of a year. It, very similarly, it's like and we've joked about it. a time. like you're a guy who's trying to break in and trying to rediscover the stuff that you once had or you're trying to figure out how you can stay competitive when you're hitting your lower 30s. Try a cutter. See what happens. Well, and it is sort of a deal with the devil because people do think the cutter puts a lot of pressure on the elbow. And, you know, when you get to that point, you're that age. Yeah, what the hell? Just, yeah. Hey, if it means sticking around in the big leagues and pulling, you know, at least big league minimum paychecks for a while. Yeah. Sign me up. Go for it. Um, so we do have a Patreon question from Steve Romanesco. He asks, are there any updates on how Dubon is doing uh, recovering from his injury? Yeah, I heard. And I wish I could cite exactly where I heard this, but he, actually, I think it was JP. He's going to be ready <laughs> for camp, right? JP. Yeah, I put that. I I. Well, it was not me like talking to sources. It was me looking at uh, a mid-season article in which they said he was on track to start prior to the year. Okay. Yeah, I think that was uh, partly just doing the math on when he went down with his injury, had his... 
but I heard surgery. there was some, yeah, there's been some indication though that he's he's fine and he'll be there for camp. And because we were yeah. talking about that a little bit, like, do we expect him as a guy who could potentially break in uh, if he has a really good camp? Does he get a a spot because he is the kind of flexible guy positionally. He could play a bunch of different positions for you. Maybe even we'll see in camp. I'd be interested to see if he goes out and uh, takes some, some time in the outfield as well, because he could potentially be that guy who fills in at a bunch of different positions and gives Craig council the, you know, that extra little bit of tools that he needs to. And he's not that level of prospect where people are going to say, screw with his service time. Well, no. And also he would have been up already. There's also a good chance that like he's going to go back down at some point. So you you don't necessarily have to. The sure. only the only time that matters, the screwing with a guy's service time and trying to squeeze out those last couple weeks, is if you're concerned that well once he's up he's going to be so good we're never sending this guy down again. So now the clock is totally running. He doesn't probably have that kind of trajectory. There's probably a good chance he's, he's coming back. And actually, I should mention this because we had a question on Twitter directed at, I think JP and I both got this question. I answered it for the guy. We were asked what it means to be a Super 2. And oh, yeah, there's yeah. probably some listeners who I don't that. know what that means. So just to be very clear about, there's, there's some service time rules that are relevant for when you call up players. One of them is, so the basic rules for for. Uh, baseball service time are you have to put in six full seasons and a full season is defined as like 160 ish days somewhere in there on a a season that's 180 something days you have to put in six full seasons before you're eligible for free agency after three full seasons you are eligible for salary arbitration so you're no longer making major league minimum you get to go into the arbitration process and you make a little bit more money and there is an exception to that called the Super 2 rule, which it's like the top 20-ish percent of all people who have two-plus years of service time, but not yet three. The top 20% of those get an extra year of arbitration. So they get a fourth year of arbitration, and that's what a Super 2 is. And the deadline for that is generally guys who are called up early early June, mid-June-ish now, because it's, it's bumped back a little bit. Uh but the the other so the, there's two big dates to worry about. There's that super two date, which is in you know mid June ish. There's also just making sure that a player doesn't get six a full year in that first year they're up, which is why we're talking about here and not coming up until you know mid to late April or possibly generally two weeks into the season. It's a few weeks into the season because you have to get to that magic number of days. And if you're called up like one day behind it, which is what happened with Chris Bryant when he came up in 2015, he was called up one day afterward. And if you get to that point, then you, you will not accrue a full season of service time that year. So it essentially gives the team an entire extra year of control. So instead of six years of control, you get seven. You basically get seven full with a, a little bit of a loss out at the beginning of the year. I will say it was absolutely crazy that his defensive issues like just completely decided. It, like the Cubs decided his defensive issues weren't that big of a deal. Like the day after that deadline happened, it was pretty incredible. I think there uh, was with him. Wasn't there an injury? I want to say like somebody got injured. It might have been Luis Valbuena even um, who just passed away. Yeah, that was actually that's a pretty crazy story, actually, the Luis Valbuena thing. But um, I to 
bring this back because of course now Ryan was talking about super two and I appreciate the fact that he was doing that. It gave me some time to look at some other left field options that might be coming in during the, <laughs> the winter meetings. Um, and I do wonder if a guy like Kyle Gibson might be a, like a really random guy that because he's only got one year left uh, before he hits free agency. He's a guy who started to break out a little bit last year. The twins might be looking to try to again, acquire as many pieces as they can uh, because it's weird because in some level you're saying it's unlikely that they compete this upcoming year, but at the same time, they probably look at Cleveland and say, Cleveland's probably going to take a step backwards. And maybe this is our moment with some of our young players to go in and actually make a run. So it's not a hundred percent clear that the twins are going to want to sell, but if they do, Gibson's the kind of guy that could actually bring a pretty nice, a nice piece. His velocity went up a little bit last year. His uh, his run prevention actually finally started to to inch under four. Uh, his swinging strike rate last year continuously jumped for the third straight year, and it went to eleven point five last year. His and again, right, like his velocity his velocity popped up a little bit as well for the second consecutive year. And so he's the kind of guy that like the Brewers might be trying to say might not cost that much, might be a little bit under the radar, but. If you look at the underlying numbers, it suggests that he's been doing some good things. The only thing kind of going against him is the fact that DRA doesn't love him. He's kind of a low four kind of guy. But if you look at how he does throughout his starts, he's a guy who's really good first time through the order. I think he had a 2-2 ERA first time through the order, and then it kind of pumped up a little bit there. So team like the Brewers that likes to play with those sorts of things, maybe it might be a pretty good spot for him. So does 80 wins get you into the playoffs if you're in the AL Central next year? <laughs> I mean, I would think that the Twins are going to be better. They have they have young talent, and they're going to keep bringing up. They have some really nice prospects that they're going to be bringing up, and um, maybe though maybe not next year. So, but the you have to think that they're going to get better. But man, the the Royals, Tigers, and uh, well, they only the had two teams over seventy wins last season. Well. The thing is, the White Sox seem like a team that should be, if things are, they're probably a team that's going to go out and spend this winter. I was going to say, the You're, White, the White Sox. Think, they've should, been connected to Harper and Machado. So, And in, as, that, in that division, it would make sense if you have some young talent that you think is going to break in and can be an impact, and then you can go out and make a big signing. They could jump into contention in a hurry. Well, and Eloy Jimenez is probably going to be up pretty quick after that, uh, the date, to spend, or the service time date. The White Sox are kind of a team that could do what Atlanta did, right? Like a kind of guy that uh, a kind of team that really starts to see a lot of their their prospects come up at the exact same time, and a lot of their big time offensive prospects can come in. The question is going to be where is their pitching, right? You've got Michael Kopech who ended up having to go down with with Tommy John surgery. You've got Giolito who hasn't looked very good. You've got guys like Reynaldo Lopez hasn't looked all that good. Um, I don't necessarily know where their pitching is, where Atlanta, you could see where the pitching was going to come from. So unless they're going to go out and really address a lot of these things and they've got the currency via prospects to go out and get some really nice, like if they want Kluber, they can go get Kluber. Like that's not, that's not going to be an issue. Of course, trading in inner division is going to be a problem. Um, but yeah, I think the White Sox, if I'm looking at the AL Central, I don't, I don't know where the impact comes from the Twins. I mean, I, I know that everyone's going to say Brian, Byron Buxton. I I don't think there's any real suggestion that he's going to break up this year. The, the talent's there, and that's fine. But at some point, like, how long can you just continuously say, well, maybe this is the year? Um, Sano, like, ended up getting sent down to high A last year. 
Well, um, and he's had other it, personal it, issues. Yes. Well, he has had some personal issues that uh, surprisingly haven't been dealt with. Um, and there is a lot of question about you know their bullpen and what they're going to be doing as well. So the the Twins have a shot, but if you're looking for a team to really come on and surprise, it's probably that. I, I think that's the, kind of the lack of competition in the AL Central is probably why Cleveland went and extended somebody like Carrasco and thinks that they can trade somebody like Bauer or Kluber, probably get some guys who are ready to be in the big leagues and still stay and compete. Yeah. Yeah. It'll that'll be an interesting one to watch. I'm curious to see. I, well, I, the White Sox are going to sign people and they're going to make trades. Well, exactly. I think this this offseason is going to be a fun one to watch what they do in that division because anybody could just go out and take control. Yeah, and I mean the Cleveland is sort of betting on them not. Like they're sure. betting that the the White Sox and the Twins are going to stay far enough in the rearview mirror to them that they can use this year as a year to take, you know, that half step back and get some more young cost control players and continue to extend the window. It's a calculated gamble, but I think it's for Cleveland. It really makes a lot of it sense makes, to be yeah. doing this because you have this flexibility and you're a smart organization that, you know, you should be able to, to pull some smart trades and, and make this work. So I, yeah, I, I think it's a good move for Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. So finally we have a Patreon question from PB brew crew. He has a couple of random off season questions that he's wondered. First off, how did you guys become friends? Wait, us? Us. Oh. Wow. I, I think we've we've talked a little bit about some of this. So Ryan and I went to college together initially. Yeah. Yeah, so, we were like uh, sophomore dorms. Yes. And it was like and that was sports down at, wasn't even a thing. It was music that was actually like Yeah, and that was down at uh Whitewater. So, that's where we met. Yeah. And, and then, we were going to room together, and then I had to transfer at the last second, and I ended up finishing at Platteville. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that's how Ryan and I met. And then uh, JP, I, we all kind of met um, through the sports bubbler, uh, the old JS sports fan boards. 2007, 2008, somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah. Do you remember about what year that was? Yeah, it was about 2008. Um, because, and then uh, after sports bubbler kind of... Uh, tanked unfortunately gurgled Gurgled. ungratefully pulled out from under our friend dan walsh's uh uh, purview speaking of Uh, which dan good to see you on friday night ran into dan over at uh, good city oh yeah and uh but it then after that happened um bernie's crew was moved to the the js online uh main site and all of kind of the the different blogs that were there kind of got pulled under bernie's crew and so we started writing together there yep and that's where the the Zach Grinky trade was broken in 2010, which is still one of the great stories of all time. It is. That was so much fun. And I had very little to do with it. That's when you could trust news that was breaking on Twitter. Yes, you could trust it. And it wasn't by it was by JP Breed, not wet butt thirty or whatever. <laughs> no, no, no wet butts here. <laughs> At the original wet butt twenty-three. <laughs> okay. Uh also, uh, what's your earliest brewer memory? Um, I went and saw a series with the Yankees in like 89, 90-ish. And that was the, like, I'd, I'm sure I'd been to games before that, but we didn't come down from the or from Madison a whole lot for Brewers games. I know you did more as a kid. You were probably more on like an annual, maybe once or twice a year mm-hmm. sort of basis. I, uh, yeah. yeah. 
I came for a double header and we sat through it was cold and nasty and like yeah, I remember I remember that. Yeah, my my dad always reminds us that uh we were at game 1 of Paul Molitor's 39 game hit streak. Okay. In 87. Yeah. In 87. Um, I remember going to see like Griffey when he was a rookie. So that would have been about 89. Right. And you would kind of know who he was because he was so high profile even when he was that young. Yeah. So we we saw that. And, and I remember going to see like the A's. We would always go see the A's when they were in town. Oh, okay. And those we, were the Bash brothers and all that kind of stuff. So Steve and I both grew up, well, JP did too, but in a different era, a little bit of a different era. We grew up in Madison in the time when the minor league affiliate in town was the Madison Muskies, who were the uh, Midwest League team for the Oakland A's. Yes. So we saw, as kids, we saw the group that came up behind. So like Terry Steinbach was a guy who we would have seen when he was Steinbach, there. Weiss. Walt Weiss, yeah. Some um, guys like that. Ozzie Kaseko was a t- super big deal because his brother was like the biggest star in the game. And that dude just like took forever to, I think he was like there a couple years. Sure. Yeah. So JP, would you have a, an earliest brewer memory? I To tell you the truth, I, I can't remember what my earliest brewer's memory was. Um, What's in, the in earliest my one you remember? <laughs> in, in my household, um, football was, was the biggest thing. Um, the watching the NFL every weekend uh, with my dad and and growing up in Madison, the Badgers were priority number one. Badger and, football was it, yeah. Well, Badger, well, and and my Badger basketball was huge, um, and so kind of going through that, everything kind of was kind of surrounded uh, UW sports, and I loved baseball, and I played a lot of little league, and I played on on traveling teams, and I did a lot of that stuff, um, but I. I loved Ken Griffey Jr. Um, I loved Greg Maddox. I I enjoyed watching. We didn't really get a lot of Brewers games on TV. uh, And so it was a lot of watching the Braves, um, watching kind of their pitching coming up in the in the late 90s. And so I didn't really become a I mean, obviously, we always liked the Brewers and we listened to them on the radio once in a while. But I didn't become a big Brewers fan until probably early 2000s when they really started to be on television um, pretty regularly. And my latter years in high school where I started to pay more attention. Um, So, yeah, I I guess I kind of came a little bit late to it. But, yeah, I mean, I went to kind of Brewers signings at at, uh, County Stadium where they let you on the field and you got to like. But I was I was pretty young at that point where I don't necessarily have big memories of it. My bigger memories are of kind of going to uh, Cedar Rapids Colonels games with my with my uh, uh, uncles, with my uncle and my, my cousins and stuff, and then going to the Madison Black Wolf and like crying because none of the players would sign my glove because I was like eight. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ended up getting signed by the mascot, and that was like the coolest thing. Oh, I got a really good Madison Black Wolf story. So we went to a game against the St. Saint Paul Saints. And for those of you who aren't aware, Bill Murray is a owner of the St. Saint Paul Saints. And a friend of ours... Uh, went over and because we saw Murray and we're all like oh, Bill Murray so he went over and got a autograph so he goes over and you know go up, walks up to Bill Murray and says can I have an autograph and Murray just takes the thing and signs it hands it back to him he yells at us from like two sections over guys I got it comes running back over to us he opens the thing up and it just says no on it <laughs> which is the most Bill Murray thing ever it's yeah I, I wish Jay still had that I was Ask him about that. Yeah, he should have kept that. That would be a thing to have. You know, it's funny when JP brings up, you know, there weren't a lot of games on TV. And it was into the early mid-90s before you got like 
Oh yeah, I have to. Well, okay, because the, the TV station I work at, my boss used to direct the games before they were were picked Back up when by Paschke Fox. was the yeah, play by play guy. Paschke and Hegan. Um, and the issue was most major league teams would only broadcast away games. Right. Those yeah. were the only games you had on because they thought that it was going to cut into the 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 gate if they broadcast home games at the time. Yeah, which it was totally, totally wrong. Totally wrong. But you can see how they would make that mistake. But it but it is the truth though. You just didn't have that like I think daily. You could just turn it on and it was there. And you were watching it, and that's why I think with a certain generation. I mean, the Cubs are always big with GN, and then the Braves. The, the Braves. We grew up watching a ton of Braves games when. You know, Glavin was breaking in, and Steve Avery was the hot was actually young the arm. ace. Of yeah, that he team. was the ace of that team. So yeah, I remember remember those eras of watching. Like if you were watching a lot of baseball games, they were those teams that had cable contracts. Basically. Well, and that's how my brother ended up a Cubs fan. Was he would come home from school and would turn on WGN and sure, you know, would be able to watch the last four or five innings of a game or whatever. No, the Cubs. Your brother became a Cubs fan because of your own personal failure of yeah. making it. Brewers fan. Yeah, well, uh, that is my personal failure. It's my cross to bear, JP. <laughs> um, okay, uh, real quick. Favorite brewer of all time? I, I got two. I'm going to hitter and pitcher. Weeks and sheets. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not a surprise. Okay. That's Those are, those are my guys. <laughs> yeah, JP? Uh, I, I still love Zach Granke, but I still just because he was so good when I was really starting to get into the Brewers um, when I was in, in middle school with Ben Sheets. Uh, well, mid, early high school, I think. Um, yeah, Ben Sheets is still like m- my dude growing up. Yeah, I grew up uh, Molitor when I was younger. Molitor was my guy. And then Sirhoff when he was drafted because for some reason, I think I knew he was the number one overall draft pick. Oh, sure. They yes. had a number one pick, so he was the guy. And also, he, he was a lefty, and I bat left-handed. So, like, when you're seven, that's a cool thing. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, those are guys that I know growing up with or, or favorites. So, And then the best game you've seen in person? I mean, I, I'm tempted to say it's, you know, it, it's like game five of the 2011 ALDS or see, NLDS. See, I would pick that, that uh, final game against the Cubs in 2008. The one yeah, whenever they, they play the Anderson call and the Braun home run and everything there, which we were at the game, so we didn't hear that in real time. No, but we ate that up afterwards. Yeah, you're probably right that that's really the game 162 is like probably, the best game. That would that, be the that one. That one pick. sticks out as kind of, yeah, game 162. The winning that playoff series against the Diamondbacks. Oh, that was great. It was such a thing. We were at both of those together. Yeah. Yeah. So, JP, do you have one that's the uh, best game you've seen in person? Yeah, I haven't been to as many big games just because just financially the games that I could make were uh, not important games. And so I think one of the, my favorite games was uh, my my freshman year. Uh, I think it was my freshman year roommate when I was when I was in college. We went to a a, um, a Brewers game against the Reds and like that was the game in which they hit like four consecutive homers against the Reds in the first inning. I'm pretty sure against Bronson Arroyo too, which like made it even better. Uh, (laughs) And so, and that was just because it was, it was a great time for, for us to go um, and have a, and have a good time tailgating beforehand and doing all that kind of stuff. But in terms of like the best quality of game, it was probably, I've, my dad and I went to go see Barry Bonds when he was kind of top of form 
uh, a few times and just seeing him play was my dad and I just, it was the, it was the best. And I think one of the games we went to, uh, Corey Hart actually robbed a Homer from, from Barry Bonds, um, which was, which was kind of awesome to see as well. Yeah. Um, I know another game that I like to, to bring up to you occasionally is the, the sheets PV start that I, I saw. I had like, I was like, less than 10 rows back behind home plate sheets and PV. This game was over in like just a hair over two hours because they were just dealing. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of games we were at kind of early on when we had just moved down here because we came into Milwaukee about the same time. And like, remember the Chris science? Oh yeah. We went to that one. <laughs> we were, we were at that game standing at standing room out in the, in the outfield for that one. Cause I remember we were like, what is happening with this? Um, <laughs> Chris Sines? Is that how you? I can't even remember. Something them. like that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we were at that game. Uh, I remember driving by the stadium during, I was listening to on the radio when they were hitting all those homers against the Reds, the consecutive homers, but wasn't at that game because I think we were going to a wedding. Yeah. But yeah, I remember um, there's one that stands out to me because I didn't go and should have gone. There was a game in like 2002, 2003 ish where the Brewers were down nine to nothing or something against the reds and ended up coming back to win 10 to nine and jay and nate went to that game a couple friends of mine and invited me to go and for some reason i couldn't go and so they were at that game which had kind of lived down in legend for a long time that they (laughs) had that big comeback win and whatever um yeah i i think i can't remember the specific games but i know when yount was approaching three thousand hits we made a bunch of trips down within like that last week it was kind of like, oh, if he goes, you know, three for four today, and you're know, you kind of counting it down, we could see a three thousand hits. So we we went to a bunch of games consecutively. Then and I know that was a lot of fun, just because you had, the, you know, something that was going to be uh, a big event for the Brewers at that time. And that was, you know, the year after the '92 team. My so aunt and there was some at least decent the three thousand hit okay. game, and she was very pregnant with my uh, my cousin at that time. So they went and, like, I think made a real effort because they were coming down from, like, uh, Sturgeon Bay. So they were, like, I think they came down, like, two consecutive days to catch it. They thought they were going to get it the day before and then, you know, had to come back the next day. But did make the trip both times. So, Man, if if we could do, like, our favorite UW Badgers game, I got a lot of those. Oh, I mean, Steve and I I were at the tie in 93. I can tell you, yeah, about some heartbreak. (laughs) I mean, the, the tie in 93 against Ohio State, I mean, it, it's sort of Well, that was an out. interesting one. It got him into the... Yeah, that how, was a wild-ass game. How do you remember that game? How do I remember that game? I was yeah. like 14. Oh, Jesus, man. I was okay. sitting in the end zone on the side where uh, Schnetzky's kick was blocked. Yeah, and then they blocked a kick coming back the other direction. We were, And then Galloway, I think Galloway scored the touchdown to tie it. Yeah. That sounds right. It was in the end zone that happened right in front of us. When it was a snowstorm, and I just remember it, that was such a... For people who are your age, you millennials, you, do not understand how much that season was a complete surprise and like shock. I had already, it at like 13 or 14 years old, had already decided the Badgers were never going to be good. And they, I cared about them by far more than I cared about any other thing. Badger football, I'd started going to games when I was like six with my dad. And so, but I had already at that point decided, no, this will never be a thing. Badger football will never be good. So that perspective 
of people that age is really weird because people that are younger have grown up with the Badger football and basketball always basically having been good. And it's it's weird to me because I'm like, no, this this wasn't like preordained. We're not that that, you know, this could all go away that fast. So, yes. So, JP, any any final memories? No, but on that point, uh, so my my wife became a big Badgers fan after after we started dating because just my family, a lot of stuff orients itself around UW sports, especially when we go and visit my folks. And um, she became a huge college basketball fan, but she became a huge college basketball fan when the Badgers were like really good. And especially like when they started to make their runs to the the final four and doing all this stuff. And then so last year when they were bad, she just like didn't understand how, <laughs> how the Badgers were this bad. And I was like, well, it happens sometimes. Right. And she was like, no, this is ridiculous. How can all of a sudden everything be so bad? And, and it was just really interesting to see, you know, and obviously she understood the injuries and all, all the things that can happen with variants and things like that. But um, yeah, I think it made her appreciate, kind of the really good times that she was seeing when she first started really following it heavily, but now appreciating uh, this weekend, notwithstanding the fact that the, that the Badgers were, are starting to kind of turn it around again and being able to appreciate, uh, you know, the good wins again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is very much that thing where it's an age thing where, I mean, when the Badgers went to the uh, NCAA tournament for the first time, that was in 93 also. That was that same season. So coming mm-hmm. out of the, the Badgers had a long unbeaten streak while the football team was going, you know, through its stuff. So early on, they I don't think they lost until like a dozen games into the season that year. But when they made the tournament that year, it was like because it was the first time since 1946 or something like it. Yeah. They hadn't been in the tournament in like many decades. And now the fact that they missed a tournament was cause for just a complete and utter meltdown when they had gone, you know, for like 40 plus years without having even made one. So it's it's a very different world. Yeah, it's just that's for sure. So anyways, uh, we're going to wrap this up uh, for this week's show. Uh, don't forget, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Patrons at the ball and glove level will receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE tailgate. You can submit questions to Milwaukee's tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's tailgate baseball podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and we're on Spotify. You can leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Tailgate.